So I, I literally just posted episode two. And, um, oh, fantastic. I realized that the end of episode two actually said like, oh, you'll probably see this on like April 19th or something. Uh, <laughs> and it is not <laughs> April 19th, it's 17th of May. So, well, you know, what's new? <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, in the... in Well, I, I blame this on the fact that in the meantime, um, I picked up... Um, shall we call it a hobby, I guess? Which is uh, finishing okay. CS50. Oh, yeah, we, yep, yep. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So, I think we last... Are you spoke, done? I'm almost done. I'm halfway oh my through God. my final project. So, there are 10 okay. assignments... And mm-hmm. um, yeah, there are 10 assignments. I finished nine of them in two weeks. I, I think I actually God. finished seven of them in just over a week. So the last few are um, naturally a bit more challenging, obviously, because, um, mm-hmm. well, firstly, it's two parts, right? So the initial stuff is relatively straightforward for anyone who has some background. Because it's the usual kind of like, you know, getting you programming in C, getting you used to like loops and um, control flow. Um, yeah. yeah. Then, and just like, you know, taking, of course, you start with hello world and, you know, spitting out output <laughs> and taking input and then doing like loops and stuff. Um, but it does, it is a course that escalates quite quickly. Um, and so I think by episode episode I mean um, episode <laughs> problem set five is uh, mm. they call it a spell checker or it's called speller uh, but what what it is I, I don't I don't remember where we left off at the previous episode like what I meant, I remember you, know. you mentioning this I think yeah the speller yeah. right yeah and then um, yep. problem set seven I think is um, python so yes, yeah, that was the first uh, encounter with a high level language, well, relatively high level compared to C. Uh, well, I mean, Python is high level. It's high level by by any definition. The question is whether C is low level. It's definitely lower than Python. But <laughs> I mean, if you're if you're talking to like somebody who regularly does like assembler or something, then obviously C mm-hmm. is like yeah, it's not yeah. assembly certainly. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, I think for me, memory allocation was new. I mentioned that. Uh, Two weeks ago, mm-hmm. um, so recursion was not new, but pointers and memory allocation were. And then um, yeah. the I, I I I lose track. So they start with week zero, which we mentioned last week. Although now I'm now I'm wondering whether they they really call it week zero or like week zero is meant to be a com science joke, a programming joke. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I I don't know what, what it is, but. Um, the second to last problem set was actually um, so y- there were actually four options. So you could choose uh, web game de- web development, game development, iOS development, or Android development. And initially, I went with iOS, um, but I realized very quickly that it is not a it's not very um, beginner friendly in the sense that if you think of you know C and then 
Python as being several levels of abstraction above C, right? Mm-hmm. iOS development is another several... Uh, okay, not several. iOS development is um, has a lot more abstraction on top of that. And so when you're trying to deal with a graphical um, user interface, right? And then now you have yep. to kind of like link all these classes and methods that, you know, you you just kind of have to follow along and be like, okay, we are manipulating this object and this object has a class and you just kind of have to, tr- uh, this object, this object has a method and you just kind of have to trust trust me on this. Uh, and this method is called <laughs> blah, 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 UIX, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, if you ever forget, you can mm-hmm. just like kind of type in the first few letters and Xcode will fill it in for you. And um, mm. it's, it becomes a case of just like hang tight and just be pulled along kind of. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I mean, basically what you seem to be saying is that a lot of subroutines are already programmed in. And it's a matter of knowing which is the appropriate subroutine to call. In a, in a sense, yeah, I mean, you can think of it as subroutines, right? But I mean, um, hmm. what it is, is like, if you think about all the UI elements on the on the iOS, right? Those hmm. are all built in to iOS yeah. development. And naturally, they, they have yeah. to be, right? Because otherwise, you know, it's, it's, it's the same reason why you have frameworks on for web development. Because it's like, why repeat the why reinvent the wheel right yes obviously, exactly yeah. obviously yeah. Um, obviously Apple wants a certain unified look to its UI mm-hmm. uh, elements um, mm-hmm. but if you have if you are not like if you have not done this before and you are, have not had the opportunity to kind of like start from the ground level right then you are just kind of like okay click here drag that, just click on this thing and type in X, Y, Z. Um, and yep. I, at least for me, I, I didn't find it very enjoyable. I was like, okay, you know what? I think I would prefer to, as far as iOS development goes, I think I would prefer to kind of start from a place where the first thing you build isn't a Pokédex. Like, that's literally the assignment. <laughs> it's like straight away. Oh, is that away. right? Okay. Yeah, straight away, it's like... <laughs> here is how you build the UI for something that looks like a Pokédex and we're going to call um, a Pokédex API and like your job is to implement the search function and blah, blah, blah. I was like, okay. Uh, all right. Huh. I would like to finish this course quicker. <laughs> so <laughs> I went and I did um, the web development track instead, which is a little bit mm-hmm. of cheating mm-hmm. because obviously that is, you know, of the four tracks, that's the one that I'm most familiar with, although doing it with Python was new. Um, Yeah. Yeah, so that I finished in about eight hours, six to eight hours. Oh my, okay, Um, okay. That's pretty good, yeah. Over one like ferocious weekend. (laughs) Uh, I mean, continuous or broken up into chunks? Virtually continuous. Um, This is the thing, right? You know, coding (laughs) is one of those things that takes up so much brain space that when you stop you know, going back to it can be challenging. Right. And I mean, you know, and the, the the longer the gap you leave, the worse it becomes. Yep. You know, I have, I, I mean, full disclosure, I have many, many projects that I'm 
should be working on, but I'm, you know, as a, an academic, I'm leaving many of my projects uh, on hold. And the problem is every time you go back to this, these projects, especially if you didn't uh, comment your code adequately, it's like rediscovering something new. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, or every time, you know, and this is the thing about academia, right? You, you write a paper, you send it in for, for review, and then the reviews come back and they say, oh, please change this and please change this or please make amendments. And you go, I have not looked at this code for at least two months because that's how long the, you know, that's how long the review process can take. Right. I've had reviews, you know, drag up to two or three months. And then you go, okay, what did I do? Right, yeah. <laughs> and then you have to relearn your code from scratch. Or sometimes you may even have forgotten what you coded. So that's, that's fun. What I thought was interesting was that I think from um, midway through CS50, they start giving you distribution code, which is Mm. code that is partially worked on or partially written already. And um, part of it is just so that you're not dealing with some of the more challenging implementation so that they can get you Mm -hmm. working on what are the more interesting challenges, right? So um, I forget which which um, class it was. I Probably the class on arrays. Actually, I have no idea. I have no idea at this point. Like some of the early lectures are like distant memories, even though it's been <laughs> less than, it's like three weeks, right? Um, is, this, is this something to do with growing older? Because I don't recall my memory being this short-lived, short-term right, yeah, yeah, yeah. in the past. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like, like as a kid, like your memory is very long. <laughs> But um, like later on, it just relative seems... time, I guess. But you know, yeah, it could be, could be. So, um, you like early on, you're dealing with stuff like um, applying filters to an image, but they don't want you to be trying to figure out how to implement, for example, um, you know, um, uh, they implement a class for you that already. Uh, handles the the writing um, RGB to a pixel. Yeah. Um, yeah. They handle yeah. things like bitmap headers. Um, mm-hmm. What what else is there? And and we did yeah. discuss this last week. So we talked yeah. about you know, and I, I brought up the example of the stats class that I'm doing right now, where yeah, yeah. you know the prof writes a good chunk of the complex code and yeah. really the parts you have to fill in are the parts that he expects you to to learn the yeah. the, the key learning exactly. objectives. Which exactly. is a really good strategy for teaching beginners, right? Yeah. Without, you know, overly... Int- and I mean, this is the other thing. And this is something that we maybe haven't really talked about. It's there is a difference between writing code and reading code. Yes, exactly. So I think writing code generally is easier than reading code that you have yes. not written, right? Because because writing code is messy sometimes as yes. well. And, uh, and well, to be, I mean, to be fair, reading code is also messy. To be honest, like on the level of difficulty, it's the easiest is writing code and then the next step is reading code, reading your own code and then mm-hmm. even harder than that is reading <laughs> other people's code. And yes. Um, so what the distribution code does is that it's, it's a two-part thing, right? On the one hand, it implements stuff that you as a learner don't know exists yet. Or rather, it implements stuff that mm-hmm. you understand, but the details of implementation, right, they are beyond you at the moment, right? Yes. Um, and so yep. they've just kind of given you this stuff that already, you know, it, 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 it works, 
and you just have to call it um, and you can not worry about the details. But um, mm-hmm. the other side of it is that it allows you to kind of um, learn what it is to read somebody else's code and figure out what, what's going yes, on. Yes, yes. So, um, like, now, the next level of difficulty, uh, of course, from reading other people's code is debugging someone else's code. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I haven't really had that problem. Although, I did run into a, an issue yesterday. Um, oh, I, I don't know. One issue, two issues. There are two separate issues to be kind of discussed here. But <laughs> so, I was looking at... Um, so for my for my final project, right? I the the implementation of the final project, right, is is really open. You just choose something, you build it, and the only requirement that they have is, or the two kind of requirements that they have is, um, the workload of a single person on the final project should be larger mm-hmm. than on any individual problem set. Which makes sense, right? right? Because this is you're yep. supposed to integrate everything that you have you have learned. So naturally, yep. it will be more than a single weeks of work, single weeks problem yep. set of work. Um, and of course, you can collaborate with other people. I'm doing this myself. Um, then the second part is, it should not be something that is implemented for the sake of the final project. As much as possible, try and solve a real world problem. Um, mm-hmm. So it's something that you can continue to work on after the class is over, is the idea, I think. Um, which yeah, makes sense, yeah. right? Like the, the web project um, for CS50 involves this thing called, um, the, the, the assignment is called finance. And what it does is you have the distribution code, um, to, which is really just like the layout of this thing that looks like a fake Google interface but what you're supposed to do is to um, build a thing that will allow a user to um, register yeah you have to be able to register log in and then um, a user that's registered will get $10,000 in cash by default and then um, fake cash of course and then um, they can Mm -hmm. look up they can look up a stock ticker. They can mm-hmm. buy, in quotes, shares using their cash, in quotes. Uh, and then they can track the value of their portfolio and then they can sell the shares as well. So you're supposed to implement mm. the the registration, the logging in, the logging out. No, the logging out is implemented, I think. Actually, I can't remember. No, no, logging in and okay. logging out are implemented. Registration is not then you have to implement the looking up of the quotes, the buying, the selling, and uh, the display of your portfolio as well as the history. So that part involves, you know, making an API call, although that's also very, it's already abstracted away. They've really abstracted away a lot of that stuff. Um, Mm. And there are actually, there is actually like an apology page, which is you know whenever there is an uh, an error of some kind, right? Um, you can actually call this function called apology, and it will just show <laughs> you a page 
we'll just show you a page with the um, with the HTTP um, code, you know, 404, 403, mm-hmm. 500, whatever, yep. and an error message of your choice. Yeah. But it's memeified. Oh, very nice. So it's literally, <laughs> it will make an API call to like a meme API and then give you a picture of a cat, very good. a grumpy cat with the error message. Um, Excellent. Is a nice touch. God, yeah, this is when so, millennials and Gen Z people start yeah. getting into coding. <laughs> <laughs> Teaching coding, specific. Well, that, yeah. Think about it, yeah. Uh, and also, oh I God. have to mention that uh, if you hear a piano, that's my um, sister teaching. <laughs> because <laughs> naturally, every, you know, teaching from, from home now as well. Yes, so, of course. Yeah, well, so, I mean, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad, you know, the course has been really... Ex- I mean, so, so you're doing web development in Python, but what about iOS? That's in Swift, right? That is in Swift, yeah. In Xcode and, okay. and Swift. Um, so okay. kind of for my, for my final project, I decided I was, I was going to kind of like go back to my roots, so to speak, and do <laughs> uh, <laughs> PHP. And mm, yes. um, it's just what I'm more familiar with. So yep. um, there was a bit of like... It wasn't planning so much as just noodling about trying to figure out what was a good way to, you know, implement this project. And my idea was just to have a, have a like, um, a collection of, like bookmarks. It's kind of if you think of, you know, if you think of like um, bookmarking apps or like read it later apps or like Pocket or Insta Paper mm-hmm. that kind of thing, right? They are meant for Dick you to or, kind of, is it Dick? No, oh yeah. Oh my God, Dick was so uh, long ago. Well, I'm old, so yeah. we're old. So, so <laughs> uh, Google Reader, which was did. more of a that was R, that was an RSS, RSS aggregator, yeah. but yeah. yeah. But so I I realized that what I kind of want is not um, a read it later kind of app, but mm-hmm. a place to save um, interesting things to share publicly. So I mean, for a lot yeah. of people, Facebook kind of serves this function, but Facebook is very ephemeral. Right, and uh-huh. there are some things that yes. if you think actually okay, if you think about like longform.org, right, which mm-hmm. is a very curated list of um, good long-form articles, something like that, right, and the ability to kind of like um, tag by theme, um, search by author, uh, and just have a place where like you know if you want to read something. Um, stimulating and you know well written. I mean, what what you're what you're describing sounds like a citation organizer as well. I mean, uh, like to some degree, yes. Tarot, yeah, right. Like a citation organizer, but for for everything that you read in general, and not just like a specific yeah. research topic. Uh, and then to yeah. be able to also have an interface for that that is. I, was going to say like customer facing but that's not true that it's just public <laughs> because things like pocket insta paper they're not really meant to be public they're meant for you only right and right, to kind right, of have okay, a yeah. page where you know i can be like hey this is stuff that i've read or watched or listened to that is pretty cool right and uh, well this was what actually i liked about google reader back right. when google reader actually was still a thing right. because you could share stuff you found on your RSS feeds that you found interesting onto a personal feed and, you know, right. you could comment on other people's 
article shares and stuff like that. And that's something that I don't think the Google Reader replacements, there were a couple of, I cannot remember the yep. names off, off the top of my head because I haven't used them in so long. But there were, you know, when Google Reader died, at least two or three different platforms came up yep. with their own alternative, but they were never really able to replicate that that aspect right. of Google Reader, partly because Google Reader was so strongly tied to the Google account. Yes, yep. Right, that you yep. could then use to you know interact with your contacts. And this is something that really just did not materialize. And so, which is why I stopped using uh, RSS aggregators altogether. I now, yeah. you know, Google is my RSS aggregator. These, uh, not Google, uh, Twitter. Right, right. right? And Twitter yep. does have a uh, save function. It has the bookmarks panel. The problem is bookmarks are only on your phone not on the desktop Interesting. Uh, version of Twitter. So, you know, wow. and okay. because I mostly use Twitter to follow the scientific world, right? Uh, I, you know, uh, not just retweeting, but also, you know, there's an important article that I think will be important for my research. There are two ways for me to do this. One is, I, because the problem is if I retweet, it gets lost in my, you know, the, the endless number of retweets I have. But if I bookmark it, I can at least go back and see what I've bookmarked over time. The problem is I can only do that on my phone. Right. The right. other way is I email the article to myself, which also gets lost in the endless deluge of emails that keeps coming in. Right, right. That's interesting because... And okay. the problem is the bookmarks folder is not searchable. So, you know, I mean, th- there, is, there is, you know, probably some, you know, really good way of extending this whole idea of, you know, bookmarking into some kind of extended searchable archive as well. Right. Surprised no one's done it up to now. I'm surprised Twitter hasn't followed up on this. Actually, that's interesting because with the reputation that Twitter has got, especially after the last um, US presidential election, um, hmm. it seems like that could be kind of one functionality that would be very uh, interesting, right? Because mm-hmm. you don't really have a kind of... Um, I think with both Facebook and Twitter, when people kind of share articles... It it's very ephemeral. Like it's not meant to persist. It's just like, hey, this is something it, that is under, like under normal use cases. But yeah. you know, in in academia, articles are meant to stick. Right, yeah, exactly. it's supposed to be you know on exactly. the rec- on the scientific record. And so yeah. so it's it's I I, I mean yeah. And, and this is the reason why I habitually bookmark things I find interesting because. I don't want this interesting article to be, you know, I read once, I think, oh, that's really interesting, and then I completely forget. Right. Or when I re- recall it, I can't find it. And you, Because, I mean, you know, people are producing literature at an astounding rate. And I think what's interesting is, um, along these lines, longform.org is actually, if I'm not mistaken, it's actually uh, managed now by the um, University of Pittsburgh um, Writing Department. Um, okay. And I think okay. it's along those lines, right? Like when you see these types of collections, they tend to be, they are often the preserve of somebody who has an academic interest in organizing that kind of information. Very much so, yeah. Right. So, I mean, this this idea that I have is, strictly, is really just for me personally, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I have discovered, no surprise, that uh, in the 15 years that I have not done any kind of web development, um, a lot of stuff has changed and a lot of stuff has matured. PHP 4 is now PHP 7. I skipped over PHP 5 completely. Jeez, and um, <laughs> back then, which again makes me feel very old, like um, jQuery was just beginning to be a thing. Yes, um, Bootstrap correct. didn't exist for another by almost like <laughs> seven years. Um so I was 
looking at I was thinking about like kind of designing like the functionality of, of my of my little web app thing, right? And so Bootstrap is a CSS framework that and okay, so frameworks in general at the time were just not a thing. Uh, or not a very common no, thing. It really wasn't, right? Yeah. yeah. At least back when we were learning web development. Yeah, exactly. You wrote everything yeah, right? from scratch yourself. Yeah. And if you had a framework, <laughs> it was one that you built yourself. Right? Yes. So yeah. So the idea of like having um in, in that way, right? Having a framework written by somebody else that you kind of just take and use, it still feels very fragile to me because you you know what's under the hood is really just some guy who has, you know, typed away at a bunch of code that's very fallible. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. 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 And so um, I was kind of like learning Bootstrap and Bootstrap um, includes or, you know, calls on some jQuery functionality. So when I was kind of building out my template, there was already jQuery in there and I didn't think too much about what kind of jQuery because when I was laying out my template, I didn't even think um, that I would need jQuery because that is how old-fashioned I am when it comes to this kind of thing. Like, I've literally been <laughs> out of it for so long. Um, and so I just put in the include for the you know, for the jQuery script. And um, later on, when and I, as I was developing my, my functionality, I realized, hey, I need to have a reliable way for the author's field to autocomplete. So when I, when I want right. to create a bookmark, I put in a title, and then I want to be able to, to um, reference, like to attach an author to each article as well, right? Mm. Yeah. And yeah. when I'm creating a new entry, Sometimes these authors will already exist in the database and I want to make sure that the user knows that. So there's a very common thing that you see now, which is you, you start typing and then like the drop down appears to be, you know, it appears and says like, um, like this such and such name, like William Shakespeare. And then you can just like press enter and then it populates that field. Um, mm -hmm. So I yeah. wanted so to... autocomplete, more or less. Correct. So I wanted to be able to um, have, a se I have a separate author's table. And then mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to, you know, just type in like the name of an author, right? And then the autocomplete will just take over. Or if there is no such yep. author, it will just add it to the database, right? Okay. Right. Okay. So I yeah. realized like, oh, this is, this is something that is done using jQuery because... Um, which again, like I said, I stopped doing any kind of web development just as jQuery was becoming a thing. So I was <laughs> like, okay, I have to kind of figure out how this works. And so I went and I found some sample code and I was like, ah, oh, this looks fun. This looks okay. And I kind of tried to put it in my, in my, um, app, in my web application and it didn't work. And I was like, well, uh, Okay. Like literally, I just copied and pasted the code and it didn't work. So I went hunting for this error. And I hunted for it for, it must be like one to two hours. Okay. Oh, okay. one to two hours is you know, fair, fair enough, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, um, okay, so here's the other thing. 
I never learned anything more than extremely basic JavaScript. So again, right. you're reading okay. somebody else's code, but then there is the additional challenge of you're reading somebody else's code in a language that you are not familiar with. Obviously, JavaScript is based yes. on C, right? Yes, but this reminds me of, you know, primary five when we asked to read Sanko Yen Yi. And like, I don't why? read the. I, I mean, <laughs> why do you I barely have any comprehension of <laughs> mainland oh, of Chinese, yeah, exactly. and, uh, Mandarin Chinese, and like you know, you're going to read this. Yeah, <laughs> and so I mean, I went hunting for, you know, the the developer console was telling me like, oh, you know, uh, I can't <laughs> find this function autocomplete. I'm like, what do you mean you mm. can't find this function? It's in the framework, right? Like, isn't it in the framework? <laughs> and then after like going on Stack Overflow and hunting ev- basically everywhere, I finally came upon the answer, which is, um, and I mean, this this doesn't include all the previous bouts of debugging, which is like, am I using the right version of jQuery? Am I using the right version of jQuery UI? Should I like <laughs> download jQuery and jQuery UI and host it on my own server? Or should I just use the one that's available on the CDN and uh, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff, right? And is it, is it my own code mm-hmm. that's wrong? Because that's very possible as well. Uh, and finally... Um, I came upon the answer, which is that Bootstrap uses the slim version of jQuery, and Ugh. the slim version of jQuery does not support autocomplete. Oh, wonderful! And so, after oh. like oh, nearly two hours of searching, all I had to do was swap out Bootstrap's jQuery and put in the full version of jQuery. I was like, right. "Holy!" At Crap. least it only took you two hours. It, I yeah. once took a full month to debug a, I mean, admittedly fairly complex piece of code. Now, this uh-huh. was when, this was like several years ago when I was working on my undergrad project. And, um, it, you know, people, you know that I work on genetics. And one of the things that we do, uh, or at least, you know, when we when we handle the, the data that comes in from, from, from sequencing data uh-huh. is we have to, okay, Okay, this is, this is, I mean, might have to get into a bit of detail here. Now, yep. when you get back data from the sequencer, it's just raw A, T, Cs, and Gs. Right. Right, yep. the FASTA files, yep. which, I, which we mentioned in episode two. Now, then you have to uh, sort all the raw information out uh, and extract meaningful information from that. Right. And so basically, say I sequence like 20 individuals. I mm-hmm. have to align all 20 individuals together so that, you know, the. Uh, uh, say this this particular sequence that's from this particular part of the chromosome aligns with all the other twenty individuals worth of the sequence. Right, right, right. They align together across all twenty individuals, and I pull out any variable sites into a file, and it generates this output file. Now the problem is this: what are the parameters? I uh, what 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 parameters should I use to tell the software to 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 do this organization? Because you know clustering is actually a fairly finicky kind of process. There are lots of parameters you have to code in order to uh, do an effective clustering. Right. Well, clustering efficacy really depends on the parameter values that you put into it. So, for example, okay. uh, if I have... Okay, um, using a, the real example of my of my bird data, right? I come When I send my data out for sequencing, it comes back as uh, a lot of 150 base pair reads. So, it's like okay. 150 letters, 150 letters, 150 letters, 150 letters. And now I have to sort them out into some kind of sense. Right. right. The yeah. first thing I'll do is I'll, uh, what the software does is it organizes all these random reads into into unique what they call stacks. The mm-hmm. software's got stacks, right? Okay. So it looks for one hundred percent matches and then it clusters them together. Okay. Yep. It says okay these say of the two million reads I get back these twenty are identical in sequence. I'll right. throw them into a stack into a bucket, right? right? And then 
it will then start to say, okay, now, now that I've assembled all my stacks, which stacks should I merge? Okay. Right? Because, okay. you know, there there is the effect of sequencing error. There is the effect of, you know, yeah, sequencing error is a, is, is a problem that comes up in sequencing. So if, say, okay, if I observe two stacks of 150 base pairs, lot length, with only two differences from each other, I'll consider them to right. be identical and I'll merge them. Right. Right? Yep. Now, the problem is, you know, these these parameters all need to be defined. So how much, how many reads do I need to have in order to con- uh, to, to consider a single stack? Mm-hmm. That's okay. parameter one. How many differences between stacks? That's parameter two. And so on and so on and so on and so on. Right. Okay. Yeah. So so setting your parameters, you know, uh, is, is really important. And so, so, so uh, someone, uh, you know, wrote a paper. Okay describing an algorithm for optimizing your parameter settings okay so you throw in your raw data it goes uh-huh. through some you know heuristics and it goes okay uh-huh. these are the best uh param- you know basically it runs through all the different parameter uh, combinations and it looks for the one that gives you the best output okay right now right so yeah. you know and, and this person wrote a really it's a beautiful paper it's you know it's a well-written paper the code was well well the code was reasonably well annotated the problem was and what I did, what it took me two months to realize was that mm-hmm. she was using an older version of Stacks. Okay. <laughs> that had several deprecated functions, and it took me two months <laughs> to figure this out. Right. Yeah. That's and what... you know this was like two months of tinkering with a seriously long chunk of code, right? Because yep. you know it's it's the it's first it's running the 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 Stacks with different parameter iterations. That part took say a week. Mm-hmm. To, yep. to debug. And then, you know, there was the part where you have to generate the, the graphs, you know, the graphical output from these things. That took another two weeks to, 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 to debug and so on. And so it, right. it you yeah, know, yeah, it yeah. was bloody annoying. But, you know, <laughs> so, yeah, two hours is, is nothing. <laughs> no, I mean, it's true. Like, when it comes to, like, hunting down a, a very, like, finicky problem, two hours is, is, a, is, a, is a short amount of time. I think, what it's a the... short John through stack exchange. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think the thing is, um, with a lot of these things, right, the frustration comes not from the amount of time spent, but how stupid the problem turns out to be. <laughs> right. Right. Which is Oh, it's a semicolon. Yeah. Um, at, at this point, <laughs> which you know semicolon... back to our ancient days. Yeah, I mean at this point semicolon hunts are like, ugh. It's it's you're you're more mad at yourself, right? Or yes, stuff like, you know, enough. forgetting like some point of punctuation or, or whatever. But when yep. you are building on an existing framework, right, um, <laughs> all of it is a house of cards. Because yes. you are depending on a, a very particular piece of code um, still being actively updated. Or, you know, <laughs> making sure that you are on that version that has this particular function. And of course, like all this stuff is documented, but there are so many versions, uh, especially stuff that is worked on by multiple people um, yep. that is forked. Over time. Over time. Yeah, exactly. And you just have Over to... space and time, oh my God. <laughs> like, so for example, um, I mean, just on on looking at examples of Stack Overflow, right? I mean, like when I see yep. something that is from like four years ago, I'm like, oh God. It, I, I, I mean, it's probably going to be helpful, conceptually, but I mean, the degree to which to which it's like helpful. This is also the reason why. R, okay, R has just updated to the latest version, okay. uh, which I think is R four. 
I am not updating my R as of yet because yeah. I worry and I fear that it will break all the code I've written oh so my God. far. I saw one poor guy on Stack Overflow who posted that um, he had just upgraded his organization's web application or he was upgrading his organization's web application from jQuery um, 2, whichever version of jQuery 2 he was on, to jQuery 3. And suddenly stuff <laughs> didn't work. And so he's like, you In know... In the distance, I'm, sirens. Yeah, he's like, oh, you know, I, I'm, I'm following jQuery's instructions, um, but there are stuff that's not working now. And the answer was, um, the solution is to go back to jQuery 2. And he yes. responded... Well, yes, I know it works in jQuery 2. My question is how to make it work in jQuery 3. And then the response was, it doesn't go back to jQuery 2. And he's like, no, you don't understand. I'm having this problem because I am trying not to use jQuery 2. And it was just like, I, I don't know who I feel like. On the one hand, I feel sorry for him. Like he's is he's he new to this? To... Because this seems like a perpetual problem in, <laughs> in any kind of programming, anyway, right? Right. It's, I, I, don't I think, think it's also one of the reasons it. why Python two point X lasted for so long. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I mean, put it this way, right? Like, I was probably like fifteen when I stopped, um, kind of working on like PHP stuff. It was mm-hmm, PHP mm-hmm. four. And now we are at PHP <laughs> 7. As far as I'm aware, there does not appear to have been a PHP 6, at least not of any significance. And so in that time frame, we've only advanced two full versions <laughs> in 15 years. Um, and even now, like the PHP 4 document, like, like there's stuff on the PHP... Um, documentation right that is still it's like okay this is the behavior in php 7 this is its behavior in php 5 and this is the behavior in php 4 like it's all in the documentation because very good i mean i'm i'm very sure there are still people running php 4 with a- don't get me started about documentation i mean you know web, well-written um, documentation yeah. is a is a beautiful thing to behold but then you get yes. you know some software packages where the document is like yes. 2,000 pages in size 11 font and yep. basically, you know, be, beyond the first paragraph, it's jargon. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> it's like, you know, software X helps you to do this function. And then, it, and then all the clarity just goes out the window from paragraph two onwards. Yep. Um, <laughs> I mean, documentation is, another, is, is a whole other thing. And especially when you uh, are... Uh, when you again, when it comes to frameworks, right, or when it comes to like extension mm-hmm. packages, um, mm-hmm. and then you have extension packages that build on existing other extension packages. Oh my god, house of cards, complete right? house of and cards. And then you are like, hey, I'm just gonna use this thing, and then they say, oh, this this extension requires such and such library, and then you install that other library, and then you discover that the extension that you're trying to use, the documentation is literally an add-on. So it mm-hmm. just explains to you the things that are different from the underlying yes. extension. And then you're How like, wonderful. okay, I, I do not have enough information to, to use this at the moment. Um, where do I get it? And then you <laughs> go and look at the underlying extensions documentation but then naturally, you're not using the underlying extension because it lacks some functionality, which is why you installed the other extension on top of it. 
And now you have two pieces of documentation. I this is called dependency hell. Uh, yeah, yeah. It is a kind of dependency <laughs> hell, right? Like you are looking at something that is more well-documented, but yep. you also have to figure out the things that have changed. And that is documented yep. in this other piece of documentation that doesn't tell you, they only tells you the things that have changed, but it doesn't tell you how to use that thing itself. It says <laughs> to figure <laughs> out how to <laughs> use the thing, go and look at this other documentation for this thing that is insufficient for what you want to do. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's nuts. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> anyway, I decided like for a final project, uh, I wasn't going to, you know, build out a whole um, completely perfectly public facing web application. I will fully admit I hard coded a password into it, which, okay, brings me to another thing. <laughs> I... Didn't we have this password thing in, in secondary school? There was this thing that went wrong where we had to try and hack progressively more challenging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are these like hacking challenges, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, a lot of fun. I, I, will, I will say my, my password is not hard-coded on the client side. That would be dumb. Okay. Right. Uh, <laughs> that's like level one of hacking. Um, yeah. Um, but either way, the thing is, so... I was wrangling with this problem last night and I like it's it's again the thing of you don't want to leave a problem dangling before you stop because right. when you come yeah, back to no. it you forget everything that you did to try and fix it. So I was very yes. determined to get to the bottom of of this stupid thing. I implemented a basic login function, right? So you click on it, you type mm -hmm. in your part your username, your password, and then naturally you want to implement a logout function as well so the login function yes. all it does is it just checks is the username correct is the password correct uh i mean like i said i hard coded them so it's fine we don't have to talk about that right now um and then if it is if it matches up set a cookie sorry right okay yep, yep. and then when you want to log out you unset the cookie so mm -hmm. um there are a couple of ways that you can undo that you can just literally unset the variable um, mm -hmm. you can set a cookie with an expiration date in the past. Right. And that's supposed to indicate to the browser that this cookie is expired. Yep. So I did that. And then when I tried to use this logout function, I found that it wasn't working as I intended. So what would happen is I can click on login and I log in, right? Then I click on logout and then it shows me a page and um, the log out button has changed to log in, which you would think means that I have logged out. Yes. Right? Okay. Then when I click when on the log... refresh... No, I, I could have refreshed, uh, although I didn't. Okay. When you click on log in again, it automatically logs me in without oh. going through authentication. So I'm sitting there oh, just see. literally clicking on this one spot and it's just going log in, log out, log in, log out, log in, log out <laughs> without any authentication in between. Huh. And then I was like, did I do something huh. wrong? But then, okay, I literally just copy and pasted the cookie expiration <laughs> documentation from php.net into right. my web application and mm -hmm. the cookie was not expiring. Like, I can see the cookie right. in Chrome and it's, like, expiring like expiry when browser session ends. Mm. 
And then I was like, oh, as is the, you know, the norm for somebody who's relatively inexperienced, right? You're like, it must be wrong with my code. So I was like, what other <laughs> ways to do it? And then there are people, yep. again, you go on Stack Overflow and then you're like, a cookie has to be unset or, you know, you can only expire a cookie uh, based on like certain settings. Like, is your path correct? My path is correct because everything is in, in one directory, right? Oh my and God, then, paths. Okay, yeah. but yes. <laughs> and then... Uh, and that that one was like, yeah, my path is definitely correct. It's not that is not it. Yeah. It's something else. Um, okay. And then I put in. Uh, can I just say I, I admire people who are bold enough to set relative paths for everything. <laughs> um, which again, I, I I'm not I'm not that smart. I just use absolute paths because I know the files are where they are supposed to be. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's the other thing, right? Like when you're writing for yourself, it's very different from when you're writing for other people. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and at some point, Jeez. you just have to trust that the user is kind of smart enough to figure out all these things. But then you kind of have I'm the not, other problem, so, which, is, you know. <laughs> which, which is, the, is the problem with frameworks, right? Of, okay, I've set it up on my computer this way, but yeah. when I put it up, for other people to use there is yeah. zero guarantee and some of them of course will be experienced enough to figure out what's going on and then mm-hmm. there will be many others who are using your framework because they li- it's not just that they are lazy and don't want to reinvent the wheel but because they don't know how to and then they'll and these are the people who will consider the 90% of the Google forums posts correct the Google groups post on the these forum. are the ones who go on Stack Overflow <laughs> And ask a question yeah. that's been asked like a hundred times and then they'll yes. get downvoted and then, you know, stuff like that. Okay, anyway. They get disheartened and, you know, and it's, it's not a... Yeah, anyway, yes. I mean, you can't, you can't blame them because, <laughs> because like not everyone has the opportunity to, you know, be... to go through this kind of like educational journey in exactly the right progressive steps. Sometimes you're just thrown into yes. it. Yes. So, you just hack it, which is what which is what happened in some sense to me, right? You know, yep, I yep. never went through a formal bash course, and so mm-hmm. you know, all of a sudden in the fourth year of undergrad, where I get this chunk of data sitting on my desktop, and I go, "Okay, what now?" And then people online are like, "Just run this software." And it's like, "There's uh, no interface." Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> you know. I mean, okay, I, I mean, I did learn Bash in the army. It was like really, mm-hmm. really long ago and it was extremely basic. It was like, basically they taught us how to use the ls command, which is list mm, everything yeah, in the yeah. directory and then cd, which is change directory. Yeah. I think that was it. No set, no, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, no loops. Um, and so when it came to this, you know, this, this, this task that I had to accomplish and, you know, I had to accomplish it within a fixed time frame because I had a deadline. Right. Okay. And I yep. had this chunk of, say, I think 400 gigabytes of data to analyze. And it's like, what do I do now? So I had yep. to basically just learn everything from scratch. And because of that, I became the go to IT person in the lab as well, which is very funny. Right. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, happens, no, one, no yeah. one learns these things these days. And we should, but yeah. Yeah. So, and uh, I think that problem, <laughs> if anything, is probably exacerbated in graduate school. Because, right, because like, the learning curve. In, in I mean, I mean, to be fair, in graduate school, so far, at least the program I'm in, 
uh, it's not been structured in terms of how we learn these things, but there has there mm-hmm. is enough expertise within the department, uh, and there's enough you right, know right. at least the graduate students think of the, think of each other sufficiently to to teach each other certain things. So 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 this is one thing that we did. I don't know if I've mentioned this in the previous episode, but what we what uh, mm-hmm. I did in my first semester of graduate school is that some of the more senior grad students they they actually taught their own course. So we taught this course because oh, okay. it's advanced R. Uh, advanced R, not because we're learning advanced, you know, programming techniques. It's basically, um, say, okay, grad student A who does niche modeling, okay, right, and he does all his stuff in R. He just comes in and teaches an hour-long course on how to do niche modeling in R using a very specific R package that he knows very well. Right. Okay. And then grad student B that does say RNA sequencing comes in and does single cell RNA seq uh, RNA seq analysis right. in R. I taught a course on, you know, uh, estimating bird abundances in R and so on and so forth. Right, right. So it's sort of like a, you know, and I, I, I to, to be fair, once you go beyond the basics of R, which is, you know, mm-hmm. or basics of any programming language is how to declare a variable, what your, what your different, uh, you know, what's a Boolean, what's a character, what's a string, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. All the specific use cases become extremely arcane. Yes, and so it, that might actually be a better way to learn advanced techniques, which is very uh, tailored to specific use. At least, at least within the sciences, I don't know about you know general use, say, in, mm-hmm. in IT, you know, in, in in computer engineering, but at least within the sciences, the the specific use cases define very much what kinds of analytical techniques and therefore what kinds of packages you use in in in, in analysis. Right. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking that in graduate school, it would be more, um, it would be challenging. Precisely because so much of graduate work deals with uncharted territory to begin with. Well, I mean, you're not so much. I mean, there there, there are software packages that end up becoming like the go-to analysis right. method, and and this is something that's very interesting. And uh, to 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 uh, sidetrack a little bit, a paper mm-hmm. came out this week which I haven't read, but I've I've skimmed the abstract mm-hmm. of. Um, it talks about this very popular program called Mark. Okay. M-A-R-K. Now, Mark is used for lots of ecological analyses. And I think an, a meta-analysis just came out showing that a very large chunk of past papers that have been published using the Mark program are mm-hmm. not replicable. <laughs> and many of the authors could okay. not even be contacted. I mean, this, uh, these are two separate problems, right? The, the, the yes. non-replicability of Mark is because, you know, I mean, to some extent, the software itself is hard to use okay. and also you know not everyone uses software in the correct way and then the second part about you know authors not being contactable is a function of universities not retaining your email address when you leave right okay which is really really stupid i mean i still have my undergrad email address <laughs> i don't yeah Okay, so and uh, so I don't have my undergrad email address. I don't have my staff email address. Right. Yep. And you know, so so when I publish a paper, my corresponding author address would default to my, or at least I would normally put my institutional email address. But yep. if that keeps changing, that's going to present considerable problem problems for you know, uh, uh, yeah, just keeping. Uh, Going after, or well, not going after, but contacting people who who've written interesting papers and who you know whom you want to correspond with for right. for more details, right? right? And I mean, which is why, and and again to 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 slide onto another topic, this is why you know increasingly in in the sciences we're talking about maintaining uh, public profiles, so not just right. Twitter, yeah, that makes sense, but Google Scholar, 
ResearchGate, well, ResearchGate, uh, people love to hate ResearchGate, but I use ResearchGate a fair bit. But Google Scholar is really important and also having a personal website, which yeah. I actually don't have, which, and I need to maybe spend the next couple months working on one. Right. I mean, that makes, that makes sense. I mean, it kind of reminds me actually of this um, paper that I read when I was an undergrad. And um, it was, I, I don't remember the paper. I don't even remember the, the, the professor who kind of um, was, um, he was one of the, you know, later named authors of the paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know what that means, which is, this is a very senior guy who didn't actually work on it, but kind of like send an email <laughs> once kind of thing. Is that so, how it is in linguistics? Because in at least in STEM fields, the last author is the most, is, is like the boss of the lab. He's the one yeah. who got all the funding, is the one who oversaw the project. And yeah, then the I, first I'm, author is the one who did all the groundwork. I'm pretty sure that's how it is in linguistics as well. So like the, the okay. last name author is usually the biggest name, but not necessarily the person who... Is the person who is lending his credibility to the, to the paper pretty much? Mm, I I but, don't I wouldn't uh, put it that way for the scientists. Okay. The last author in the sciences is the one who is the head of the lab. Yeah. Or so, the, the 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 sort of you know okay. I mean when when you look at huge projects, especially in the sciences, uh-huh. it's it's never a one person thing, right? Yeah, it's always going to be some guy on the ground that's doing all the bench work or the field work or the everything and the analysis and everything, and then there's a usually this person on the ground is working for someone else who will secure the funding, who will write right. all the grants, who sets right. the direction of the lab. And so, so that's how things are organized in science. So, so the last right. author usually is the head of the lab. Or, and, and I mean, you can say in a sense, it is the person lending their credibility to the paper as well. But uh-huh. that's being a bit cynical. That's in, true. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, I was being snarky. Yeah. So <laughs> in, in this particular case, right, I forget the, who, who this... Um, who this uh, researcher was, but he was um, basically like one of the um, grand seniors of of um, this particular subfield in linguistics. I've forgotten the title, mm-hmm. I've forgotten the name of the author, I've forgotten everything. Um, but I remember that when we were going through this paper, one of my professors, because there were two professors who co-taught the course, he pointed out, I would just like to draw your attention to the institutional um, affiliation of this author, <laughs> and then when you look at it, right, everyone is like institution of blah, 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 university of blah, blah, blah. And then this guy was like, villa such and such, comma, Italy. <laughs> <laughs> because at the time, he was already very well known in this, such, in this sub-discipline. And I think he had retired <laughs> by that point. But the, right. um, obviously, he <laughs> had worked on this research in some capacity. And um, they mm-hmm. were citing him, right? And um, he needed to yep. be contactable right <laughs> so they're mm-hmm. like please direct all your snail mail to villa blah 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 in some town in italy um <laughs> which is clearly you know his retirement um hideout um but then again a bit tage. yeah but then again like when you are well established you can do that and you can um get away with it <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, okay. To be fair, though, in in at least in the the organismal, but well, not organismal biology per se, but in um, animal biology, uh, you actually see quite a. I mean, I, I think we're drifting completely, and I think that's fine. Um, you actually see a lot of authors in, uh, say, ornithology journals who may not right. even be institutionally affiliated, because you know, in 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 um, right. Uh, uh, any you know any kind of animal science you're always going to have this huge contingent of what we say non-professional scientists right right, right. um 
in in Singapore, for example, you know, just just to give an example, our spider expert, our one of our top spider experts, is not a scientist. Okay, he's a diplomat, a retired diplomat. Oh, okay, right. Um, our top stick insect uh, expert in Singapore is a surgeon, I believe. Wow. Okay. Um, our top. Butterfly expert in Singapore, one of our top butterfly experts, and many right now, uh, one of our top butterfly experts in Singapore has written several books about butterflies in Singapore. He is an architect, professionally. That's interesting. Um, so, so I mean, you know, it, 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 this, this does certainly vary by field, but within sort of the animal sciences, actually, you see a lot of, I wouldn't say amateur experts, but let's just say non-professional experts. Right. People who have, you know, as a hobby, developed this incredible corpus of of skill that makes them, you know, experts in their own field, but yet they don't have necessarily institutional scientific credentials to back that, that up. That reminds me of an article that's just come out this week. Um, I don't know if you've seen it floating around, but it is from Wired magazine, uh, and it's about Marcus Hitchens, who... Um, okay, I've seen it, but I haven't read it. Yeah. Again, so, one of those things that, you know... Yeah, it's in the, the zeitgeist somewhere. of information. Somewhere. Just, yeah. 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 So yeah. Um, he is the security, uh, cybersecurity expert who stopped the WannaCry uh, ransomware attack. Yes, okay, yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And uh, he has a really interesting story, actually, because prior to his time uh, in information security, he was a, what we would call, a black hat. Um, yes. And that is just part of, like, that is part of, you know, why there is such a long feature. Because in a way, it's like a very, um, I, I don't want to say like it's a Hollywood story. It's more like a, you know, like a Greek epic kind of thing. Like... <laughs> a um, tragedy. A tragedy with a, with a happy ending, I guess. But um, it, yeah, it, it I has guess. a very epic, it has a very epic quality. And I think mm-hmm. what makes the story interesting, right, is that he is very clearly a, a prodigy, right? right? And he is in this field where um, you, where the ultimate, the ultimate proof is in the pudding, right? Like, if you are able to reverse engineer stuff and figure out why things work or how, like, you know, um, botnets and Trojan horses and everything, how they behave... Um, mm-hmm. you can very easily kind of become accepted as an expert regardless of your professional credentials. Like that, they right. beca- those things become your professional credentials in effect. Mm-hmm. And so like, if you, if you look at his story, he's like, it's like one of those crazy stories. Like he was a, basically like a child computing prodigy. Um, <laughs> and then he ended up, so he actually was, uh, like he was on um, what I think would have been considered like a white hat forum and then that forum closed down but for him as a kid like he's interested in the hacking not necessarily in the ethics of it yeah so he ended up on a different (laughs) forum which was a a black hat forum pretty much yeah and Mm, then he built up his chops there and then he he kind of like got started right Um, basically like writing malware and um, yeah so he was writing malware for a period of time. And then, um, interestingly, I can't, can't quite remember the transition. But then 
there was a period of time where he kind of started writing analysis of malware, which... Oh, wow. Became, yeah, that was his blog. That is high level. Correct. So that was his <laughs> blog, uh, Malware Tech. He was very young at the time. He was like 18, 20-ish. Oh yeah. And uh, I think if you kind of like look into the details of his story, I think he pretty much... He was looking for a... Did he drop out of university? I don't. I don't remember how how this goes. But he was um, waiting for. He applied for a job at GCHQ, and he was waiting oh, for his wow. security okay. clearance, which took like ten mm-hmm. months. And during that time, he was just writing this blog, and um, eventually, huh. yeah, eventually he came to the attention of security firms, who just right. basically were like, "Hey, can you help us out with this botnet?" And he's like, "Yeah, sure." Right, and then he gets hired that way, pretty much. And mm-hmm. um, like, if you look at his 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 blog, like it's very clear that this is somebody who um, has all the grounding, right? But isn't necessarily very polished in the traditional sense, right? Um, mm-hmm. Although he, I mean, as far as as far as um, infosec goes, like he has all the necessary, like like his uh, his infosec pr- prowess is definitely like undisputed up there um, yeah okay yeah. yeah and so um what what was kind of interesting was that he went to the defcon conference and then mm-hmm. um there he was arrested by the fbi because of his yes. prior malware activity right <laughs> yeah and of course I mean, then there was a lot of stuff that yeah. got confused like you know with the fbi um arresting him because they thought he was involved in Wanna cry and you know all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and finally, um, the judge ended up um, not exonerating him exactly, but he basically was like, "No jail sentence for you," because uh, right. it's very clear that that whole malware period is like several years in the past, and obviously you have been a good, upstanding citizen <laughs> since then, basically pretty much. Um, but I mean, so he's a, British, is it? If he applied to work British, for GCH, correct? Okay, yes, mm, British. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, it's a it's a really uh, fascinating story, and I mean, I was so I was looking at his blog um, yesterday and kind of like clicking around, and there's a lot of stuff that <laughs> I, I do not understand because it's just out of my um, totally out of my area of knowledge, and mm-hmm. uh, there was an article on how um, on how to get a job in information security, and he basically was like, you know. When it comes to info security, the you know is it important to get credentials and so on and so forth? And he was like, "Well, obviously, I'm going to say no because I don't have credentials, and I got most <laughs> of my you know credibility by like writing this blog. And you know, most people who um, don't have the credentials but have the knowledge, like what you should be doing mm-hmm. is writing white papers, writing like articles and." you know, your analysis and, and so on and so forth. And like, if they are, have any quality, um, the job offers will come to you because they are so desperate for qualified right. people. And, yeah. Um, yeah, I thought that was interesting. And I think there is this, um, I, I, I don't know if I would necessarily call it a contradiction because it isn't really, but there is necessarily this um, fact, right, which is that anybody who is really outstanding in an emerging field 
doesn't have credentials because they don't oh, well, exist. That, okay, yeah, that's what, so that's one aspect, you're right. In emerging fields, yeah, you know, the, 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 the sort of the professional structure, the, the credential structure hasn't yet emerged. Yeah. But, you know, organismal biology is as old as, as, old as true, it gets, yes. right? That is <laughs> yeah. true, yeah. And so it's, it's not an emerging field. Yeah, as much as true. it is a deeply ossified field, <laughs> um, that is in, in very some true, ways, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, so I think you know this does vary from field to field, right? It, it's that is true. The, the I guess the barriers to entry. It's not like, you know, I can become a doctor without credentials. So that's that's <laughs> or a yeah. pharmacist. Now, if I didn't go yeah. to pharmacy no, I, school, absolutely. if yeah. I read a lot of pharmacy textbooks, I I. I would not be able to rock up to a hospital and go, hire me as a yeah. pharmacist and then make it big as a pharmacist. Yeah. <laughs> like that. That's not going to happen. But at least in fields where, you know, a lot of the knowledge is in the public domain. Yes. Um, and there's a c- certain amount of discovery that comes along with it as well. Yeah. At the very least. Um, yeah, for it's sure. possible to, 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 to become an expert in your own right without having to go through formal processes like getting a, a graduate degree with a master's or, or a PhD yeah. And I think part uh, of like the field specific element, right? It's like I mean with math you always have this story of, you know, prodigies mm-hmm. who just like is this idea that, you know, when it comes to something like math and computer science and music, the Carl of course, Friedrich Gauss and the Ramanujans. Yeah, yeah. yeah, there's always this element of like like prodigal ability, right? Whereas there are some other mm-hmm. fields that just require a certain amount of maturity and development and those tend to be the ones that are more institutionalized just because a lot of that development happens in an educational context (laughs) but Mm. yeah yeah anyway that's a that's a completely side note i need to finish the story Mm. with the with the cookies (laughs) (laughs) yes with the cookies yes oh my god how did we get from cookies to i don't remember yes (laughs) i don't remember so I did a bunch of hunting and because um, the CS50 IDE only works in Chrome, so I'm not doing any of this development inside the CS50 IDE. Um, but right. um, I've just like kind of habitually like segmented it like non-CS50 stuff goes in Safari, which is my regular browser anyway. And then um, the computing stuff goes in, goes in um, Chrome. So I've been doing mm-hmm. all this stuff in Chrome and then... I came upon some Stack Overflow answer that hinted that this might be a Chrome-specific problem, Chrome and Firefox. So there were some reports that Safari had this behavior as well, but um, oh, okay. But I, um, I, I wasn't sure. I thought, okay, actually, you know, let me just try in Safari. So I tried it in Safari. Hmm. I discovered that my login and logout function worked exactly as intended. Like you huh. log in, it would prompt okay. you for an authentication. Okay. Then you would log yep. out, and then when you try yep. to log in again after that, it would prompt you for authentication. None of this like automatic login lo- nonsense. <laughs> and then at this point, I'm like, okay, so it's a Chrome specific. It's not a problem with my code. It's a problem with right. Chrome. Yep. Or at least yep. there is something that Chrome, that's Chrome specific, right? So I yep. went into yep. the developer console, and I was like, okay, um, how do I kind of like check what headers are actually being sent? Um, because I wanted to check if the cookie expiration header was being set at all. Mm, and um, yeah. basically, I discovered 
that um, Chrome has very aggressive caching. And ah, it will cache okay, for uh, okay. 300 seconds or five full minutes. Which is another thing that I noticed, which is that I left my oh. desk for like five minutes. And when I came back, one time, it I was, was logged okay. out properly. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so this is some kind of caching issue, but how do I fix it? And then after right. a bit of like digging around, I realized that it, it caches for about five minutes, for 300 seconds. And the way to fix mm-hmm. it is you... Um, send a header to force Chrome not to cache you know this this one page this particular page so right obviously it's the login page um, that well actually it is the log out page okay okay well okay no the the code is it the the, no. the cache control code is on the log out page um, but basically it just says when you send the user over to this next um, URL, which is the, the mm-hmm. homepage, right? Yep. yep. Do not pull up a cached version. You are not allowed to do I that. I see. Okay. okay. You must pull it from okay. the server. And then, of course, in Hopefully that situation... Hopefully, that's just one line of code. It is just one line of code, yeah. Okay. Thank and it's just one line of code. <laughs> uh, it's, it's literally just okay. one header. Yeah. Mm, and so, right. like after like two hours of trying to wonder what was wrong with my code, um, it I discovered that it's actually something that is wrong, so to speak, with Chrome. Right. Um, <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm not surprised. Honestly, not yeah. surprised. Although, yeah. you know, I mean, this, this does hark back to, uh, and I believe both of us are old enough to remember um, the browser wars. Oh, yeah, of course. Yep. <laughs> you know, not just, you know, Netscape. I mean, we, we did live, oh my God, we lived with Netscape yep, correct. as well. The birth and correct. death of Netscape Navigator. Good heavens. Like um, Mozilla, right? But, you know, <laughs> oh, no, Mozilla still, is, do people still use Mozilla? I'm fairly certain people do, right? I don't. Um, I, I use Chrome. It's more of Firefox than, than Mozilla. I don't Okay, yeah, fi- yeah, yeah Firefox. Mozilla is an active Fair development anymore. But, um, but yeah. you know, the, um, no, um, how and how, I mean, the, the, the browser wars aside, you know, the, the, especially if you worked close to adjacent to government how everything mm. had to be de- developed for ie6 yes which was an awful browser oh my god it was slow <laughs> yeah it was it was god and, you know and everything would break on chrome yes even though it would process a lot faster because yeah. chrome had a much better javascript engine than uh, ie6 yeah and i mean there was there was ie6 was worked around for so long like anything client yes. side had to have an exception for IE6. Mm-hmm. And then you would see all yes. this code that was just commented for IE6. Yes. Right? Like it's just <laughs> commented out in a way that yep, yep. other browsers will ignore yep. it. Um, That's right. Or vice versa. Can, can pass. Right? Yeah. And yeah. it's, cr- it's it crazy stuff. Ridiculous. I mean, thank goodness IE6 died, you know, at yes. last. And. Do do people? St- what is? I don't. Even, I, I I mean, I haven't used a PC in a long um, time. So I don't even Edge. know what's the standard, bro. Edge, in, right? Do people Edge is the one that comes on use Windows. Uh, okay. I don't know if people use it necessarily. <laughs> I think a lot of Windows users just default to Chrome now. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, I use yeah. Opera briefly for a short while as well. Or Opera. Yeah, I've I've seen Opera every now and then as well. But Opera still right. has a very low market share. Right, and then Extremely you know the Safari, yeah. which I sometimes use when Chrome doesn't work, especially yeah. when I'm logging into government databases. So you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. It's, I mean, I, I, anyway, but yeah. But I mean, honestly, Chrome and Safari, they kind of like both have these types of niggling issues. Um, when I was setting up my server for, for this project, mm. um, I set it up on Bluehost actually. And I kept okay. trying to log in to, uh, was it? No, yeah, I was trying to log into my Bluehost control panel and it just did mm-hmm. not work. And <laughs> I ended up on um, Bluehost customer support chat mm-hmm. and I was like, uh, I can't seem to log in and I don't understand why. And then I opened it in Chrome and then it worked. <laughs> and the guy on the other end was literally just like, yeah, we're having some problems with Safari. Which, <laughs> to be fair, to be fair, like um, at my workplace, the our um, web application does not work on Safari. Like that's actually one of the first things that we check. Oh wow! When okay. somebody reports okay. a problem, we're like, "Are you on Safari? Don't. Is it Safari? Don't. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I only use Safari enough, when Chrome breaks. Um, that's that's my. I use. Approach. I always. I I can't. Okay, it's very hard not to have Chrome because of how ubiquitous Google Docs and Google Drive is nowadays. Yes, and, correct. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there is some functionality that's only available on Chrome. but mm-hmm. Like offline saving, I think, as well. Or I offline think, editing. I don't remember if offline saving is. I know uh, is voice dictation is only on Chrome. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. And then, let me, let me think. Um, funnily enough, this is... I guess off topic for what we are discussing, but actually one of the more <laughs> common questions that I that I hear is um, sometimes I'll be like, "Oh, you know, we've we've kind of fixed the problem on our end. Can you refresh now?" And then the the user will say, "How do I refresh?" And I kind of have to be like, um, "You know, the URL bar like next to it, like click that button." Two arrows, <laughs> and uh, yeah, there literally there there are people who don't know how to refresh, which to me is mind boggling. <laughs> okay, I mean, I, I I I can see where that comes from, but having worked two years in IT support, nothing surprises me anymore. We could devote a whole episode to my adventures in tech support world, but that's I think uh, gonna so, run well over two hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway. I am trying to finish up um I'm trying to finish up this project so that I can be done with CS50 and then move on to something Are else. Are you going to pay for the certificate? I'm thinking about it. Um because I mean it's a pretty good accreditation to have. I don't know if is accreditation it? is the word necessarily well, like mm. it is a nice proof of, you know, having completed something. And I mean to the degree yeah. if you think about it that you know, people will pay like a hundred fifty bucks for a weekend crash course, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, this yeah. is excellent value if you think about it from that point of view. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, I have no problem paying the money. Um, mm-hmm. I probably will, to be honest. Um, yeah. Although this is a question that do you mind if we run a bit longer today or? Sure, of course. No, uh, I, I or maybe we might. I mean, it's mm. yeah, or maybe mm. we might just make semester is finally over for me. So, you know. 
Or maybe we might just make like the episode like regularly two hours long or God knows what. I mean, whatever. Maybe. We'll anyway, see. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, so... I mean, I've been thinking about this because um, I have been thinking about, for example, right, if I wanted to shift job functions, right? Like, what are mm-hmm. the what are the kind of qualifications necessary for that? And to what degree is it about the qualification? And to what degree is it about demonstrable skill? And of right. course, when it comes to something like computer science related, those two things often go together. Because mm-hmm. you take the course and you do the problem sets and the problem sets are the proof of skill, right? Yeah. It is yeah. a lot less clear when it is something humanities related. And this is not necessarily a knock against like humanities as a course of study. I mean, I, I was a humanities <laughs> major. Um, mm. But as I was a Spanish major, um, besides being a film major, but the reality of it is um, when you you know, when you take a course in, like, history or when you take a course in, like, for example, on Coursera, uh, I actually completed the course for, like, the Holocaust. I think there there is a course about, like... Oh, wow, um, Yeah, okay. the Holocaust. And it's, like, part one and part two. Yeah. So, I mean, I completed mm-hmm. the course in the sense that I watched the lectures, I passed the quizzes and things like... There's another course on um, linguistics, actually. So it's like a very basic linguistics, like 101 type course, but even more truncated than your usual linguistics mm-hmm. course, to be honest. So, I mean, like my Coursera dashboard shows those three courses. But um, I think those would be, in a sense, not worth the certificate. And why I say that is because if you are looking for demonstrable skill, Right, having those certificates doesn't demonstrate anything. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Right, because um, I mean, what are the outputs of of the course anyway? Do you, are you explaining right? Uh, no, essay, like literally nothing. Uh, so mm, yeah, so you right. know, okay, personal yeah. enrichment, great. Yeah, and I mean, like a lot of the other courses, like I've actually done like two courses on um, nutrition, right from. Um, mm-hmm. Wageningen University in the, in the Netherlands. I think I mentioned that in the last episode as well. Yeah. And so for those two courses, there were quizzes. The quizzes, I think you could only take twice or something like that. Okay. Um, I don't remember how they were graded exactly. Um, but they were... I, I won't say that they were easy necessarily, uh, you you clearly had to have gone through the material and understood it, and there were always one or two gotcha kind of questions. Um, mm-hmm. But then, the final component, or not final component, like both of them included a paper. So you were supposed to write like a kind of paper of sorts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget exactly what was required for each one. Um, and uh, one of them, actually, because the start of the macronutrition course um, you know the the very beginning the professor actually talked about how to analyze the quality of a study based on its experimental design and based on the parameters 
that you know oh. um, are involved in the study. So that's a skill many professional scientists don't have. Well, I mean, yeah, no, many exactly. Young professional scientists don't have exactly. I think <laughs> I think like it's very significant that they started with that, especially since nutrition is a field mm-hmm. that is okay. rife with misinformation. So oh I my think, God, yes, yeah, absolutely. So it, it, it is very, um, it's a very good sign, actually. And of course, Wageningen is, is excellent for anything relating to agriculture and nutrition and, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. stuff like that. So they started with that. And I think the kind of message that they were trying to drive home was, of course, in this course, you're going to learn all about like protein and, you know, carb, carbohydrates and like mono and like disaccharides and you know, like lipids and the the way that it goes through the body and like how it's processed and how it breaks mm-hmm. down, all that kind of stuff, you are going to learn about all that. But really the underlying message is how do you filter what is um, a good study for, or how do you filter what you read in the news about nutrition, right? Yeah. From yeah. the stuff that, how do you just make sure that you're getting accurate Scientific, scientifically validated I mean, information. I think that's something we should really talk about in the next episode. Right? Oh, yeah, I mean, we sure. have touched a little bit about this in bad science and bad pharma, yes. but the whole idea yeah. of science communication is, I think, a very different dimension altogether. Yeah. It's not so just, just you know how well science is conducted, but also how it is reported. Uh, yeah. I mean, we have, within the last two weeks alone, right, the whole murder hornets thing in the US oh, is my God. Okay. an example yeah. of violently bad science communication. You know, yes. and, and you know, the more we dig, the more we're going to find all these cases. Just you know, within the last two weeks alone, right? That yep. that show dramatic failures of science communication, yep. but also you know, certain cases where there are dramatic successes in terms of how the science is communicated to the public as well. Right. So the interesting thing is, I okay, actually remember for the macronutrition course, the written assignment was to actually write up something about um, coconut oil. Which obviously is, mm-hmm. you know, which obviously is one of those like <laughs> hype foods, right? And on the one hand, it's like, yeah. oh yeah, it's is the best food ever. And then on the other hand, it's like, oh, it's um, what was it? There was this Harvard um, lecturer who said it was like literally poison or something. So, <laughs> so it was a question of, um, okay, research uh, medium trade mm-hmm. medium chain triglycerides, and evaluate yeah. like their impact. On, on health yeah. uh, evaluate like the claims made about it and so on and so forth and I actually kind of started that assignment but I didn't finish it two reasons it's a rabbit hole it's a rabbit hole yeah it's a rabbit <laughs> hole digging at it's yeah. yeah so it was it was two reasons one was for me personally what I wanted to learn from the course uh, wasn't about coconut oil <laughs> um, sure and I mean I understood like the experimental design and so on and so forth but like for me my goal was not to have the ability to you know um, write these evaluations, right? I, mm. I was much more interested in like just the pure nutrition part of it, like right. the pure biology part okay. of it. Um, so in a sense, you know, it's stuff that you can read from a book rather than go through a course. The other reason, um, which something about the, this made me uncomfortable, which is because it's a MOOC, right? Because it's such a, you know, it has such a large enrollment, even of verified learners, they can't grade it one by one. And this yeah, is where like yeah. stuff like computer science and mathematics has an advantage because they can be programmatically graded, right? Mm. Um, in a way that a lot of other disciplines cannot. So 
which is another topic for another episode. How yeah. is uh, assessment going to change yeah. with the current environment? Yeah, exactly. So the <laughs> thing is, um, the way it was done was you submitted the paper and then in order for that assignment to count, you had to also mm-hmm. review one of your classmates' submissions. Ah, oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. And I forget how it was weighted exactly and so on and so forth, but I remember realising that you could pass the course without submitting that paper. Right. And so I opted not to do it. But I also think that that is a deliberate course design decision on their part, that Mm -hmm. you could not fail the course because somebody who is not an expert graded you down. Right, yeah. <laughs> so I think that is deliberate. <laughs> okay. Um, and the okay. way that the professor kind of addressed like fears about this was he said, uh, peer review is a very important part of science, right? Mm-hmm. And as a professional, you will be asked to write things and submit them for review by somebody else, but... My view on that is that um, while that is not wrong, right, at that level when you are in an institution and you are submitting something for peer review, you have a certain level of confidence that the people who are doing the reviewing um, have the requisite um, knowledge. Uh, I mean, we've covered this in episode one. We've covered this before, yes. not always... that's not always, not always the case. It's it's complicated. Oh my god, it's complicated. Uh, I um, mean, yeah, but also you know you. Uh, uh, this is uh, I mean, this is a, a topic that always comes up on Twitter and science Twitter yep. at the very least. Um, yep. Reviewing and ethics of reviewing and you know unprofessional reviewers etc etc and oh good heavens but no I yep. mean the the general point stands but you know there are lots and lots and lots of edge cases out there. Yeah. No, I mean, def- definitely, like, it's, it's not a straightforward thing. And I can see that yeah. for a MOOC situation, it's a very thorny problem to solve. Because on the one hand, you really want the students to get that practice. Yeah. But on yeah. the other hand, if you cannot find an appropriate feedback mechanism, mm-hmm. uh, how do you make sure that the work that is being done is actually meeting basic quality standards or achieving its yeah. basic like pedagogical purpose right um yeah yeah so in the end i opted not to do it firstly because okay it like my goal doing the course was not to you know was not necessarily to um have that um proof of that particular skill let's let's say right i was much more interested in like the basic nutrition information uh because Mm -hmm. as a you know as a kid my bio always was like crap um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I like the very basic ideas of like, you know, how like food passes through the body and all that stuff. I actually yep. had very little conception of. So that, that was my real purpose in doing the right, course. Right. So for both parts of the, of the course, um, I did the certificate because I wanted the grade, but uh, I did not do the written part. Mm, I see. Fair enough. Okay, I think we might have to bring this to an end because my mom has just finished her meeting and she's talking very loudly outside. <laughs> I can hear that. Yes. Yes. Yeah, but I think. But okay. yes, this was a. 
We have several ideas for future episodes. Many, yeah. Many, many ideas for future episodes. Is this necessarily so, something that we want to write down or are we just going to keep winging it? I think... I don't know. I mean, we've, we've got by pretty okay so far winging it. I, I think... I think these are probably topics when will we'll our just luck come run back out? to eventually. So... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Multiple times. I haven't, maybe I haven't even. decided what um, class I'm going to do next, but I've decided that... <laughs> I will try and finish CS50 this weekend, which means like today, basically. Wonderful. And then uh, next wonderful. next weekend is a long weekend. I, I don't know if you noticed. Okay, <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I was surprised that yesterday was a Saturday. No, no. <laughs> I, I realized on... No, I mean... Okay, because I usually have a meeting on Friday with my lab group. Um, uh-huh. I missed it completely because I didn't even know it was a Friday. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, this is how badly I've been affected by the, the lockdown. I have yep. completely no sense of the time of day or the day of the week at all. Yeah, the Monday after tomorrow uh, is a public holiday. It is what uh, Hari uh, Raya. Has it ended already, the Ramadan? Almost. Almost. Oh my god. Well, that's fast. Yeah. Well, okay, time it's fl- ending in I a guess week. time flies. Yeah. Jeez Louise, well, okay. So... Um, <laughs> My, I mean, I'm. I'm I mean, to be fair, last week I, you know, yeah, it was end of semester stuff. So that's you know, true. Last week semester, all the deadlines, everything is due. So basically, when when you're under that kind of pressure, time ceases to make sense to move in a linear yeah. fashion. So what I'm I'm trying to do is finish <laughs> CS50 today, and then mm-hmm. reserve the next long weekend for, um, finishing up like the. So I released episode two just now before I re- restarted. Yes. So three, four, and five are still uh, unfinished. In the pipeline. They are in the pipeline. So it's yeah, so this will be six, I guess. Yeah, this is six. So yeah. uh, my goal is before we record episode seven to have episodes three, <laughs> four, five, six released. Wow, it's a tall <laughs> yeah. order, but you know, yeah. best of luck on your yeah. end. And then uh, after I that, will I will find interesting papers to talk about. I should really go and yeah. read that paper on Mark. I think that was an interesting uh, and rather shocking study that, that, that needs to be re- re- read in detail. But yeah. Yep. And I'll send you the link as well for the show notes. Oh, yeah. Okay. Sure. All yeah. right. Yeah. And then after that, I will probably start another yes. CS50 course. But which one? I oh haven't decided. Yeah. Uh, probably I'm, I'll do... hopefully being inspired by this I won't necessarily do CS50 but I think I might actually make a fourth attempt and finally go through with um, Python for Bioinformatics oh yeah it's yeah. a Johns Hopkins course that's fairly well regarded so yeah yeah which is which is another thing I realize a lot of um, courses on algorithms um, mm-hmm. involve some kind of bioinformatics uh, assignment I think just, just well, I mean, because that's, of... that's where the use cases are just so abundant. Yes, yes, uh, and I think also in terms of like the the ease of transmitting that data set is relatively easy. Really? <laughs> relatively? No. Relatively. Well, I mean, it, uh, compared to okay, if your relati- data set, I mean, Jesus Christ. Compared to if your data set is like a map. Map. I mean, I do a lot of spatial analysis as well. Right. That's true. Uh, I that's I find true. map data to be reasonably okay to handle. It's really the, the large bioinformatic datasets that scare the hell out of me. <laughs> I don't um, think the ones that are used in um, the assignments are no, necessarily no, that large. No. 
Yeah, because, absolutely not. They probably yeah. give you like three genes, four genes, and then you probably have to, you know, yeah. Say for because, example, use Python to calculate certain parameters, and which is actually something I wanted to talk about just now as well. I I may have mentioned in, before mm-hmm. about how you know there was a, a couple of uh, biologists. I think one at University of Oregon. They've mm-hmm. been looking at you know because I'm a I'm from public I'm from a population genetics background. Population genetics relies a lot on these parameters. Uh, or at least it relies on certain metrics to estimate certain things about population genetic diversity, right? right. So whether or not, um, say, we have what we call the F statistics that tell you how different two populations are, mm-hmm. okay? And the problem is there are many ways of calculating the F statistics, that are n- okay. and not every single way is consistent with, it, with, with each other. And across our packages, you can sometimes get different results using the same input file. Okay. So how do you know which one is correct? Um, mm. so, so right now what they're working on is they're, they're basically doing a, a little bit of a René Descartes and they're going, okay, we'll, we'll, start, to look, we'll start looking at each pa- these packages from scratch and see which ones make sense. And then right. compile a, a white list of things that you should be using for certain analytical right. methods. Right. So yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we. <laughs> anyway, it would be tempting to go on, but uh, no, I think we can. We, we should stop. No. Yes. Yeah. All right. Okay. So till next week. Till yeah. Till next week. Uh, all right. right. So um, show Goodbye. notes for this yeah. episode at monkeymind.xyz slash zero zero six, and uh, that will be available whenever it's available. I mean, if you are listening to this, it's available. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> let's That's not all. let's not tie ourselves down to too strict a deadline. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay.